seeing the other person's potential, mm -hmm. even when that person doesn't see it, and holding that in your mind. Hi, thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. I'm Farah White. And I'm Grant Brenner. We are psychiatrists on a mission to educate and advocate for mental health and overall well-being. In addition to the obvious, we focus on the subtle, often unspoken dimensions of human experience, the so-called doorknob comments people often make just as they are leaving their therapist's office. We seek to dispel misconceptions while offering useful perspectives through open and honest conversation. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, and requests. Hi, thanks for listening today. It's just me and Grant here. Just the two of us. Yep. No guests today, but we wanted to talk about something that Grant's written a bit about, um, this idea of being around someone who drives the other person crazy or tends to drive people around them crazy. Um, Grant, can you talk a little bit about that um, the work of Harold Searles has been sort of important to you and how you think and um, that you've read a lot of his stuff and used it in your teaching. But can you tell me about what he sort of wrote about that stood out to you? First of all, I, I think that's a, a bit of a mischaracterization. Um, <laughs> and yet at the same time, I can't really disagree. Okay. So I wouldn't say I have, I have an ambivalent feeling about Searle's work. He was a brilliant but controversial psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. um, I think he tapped into a lot of really powerful psychoanalytic perspectives. Um, and he was particularly honest in terms of how he was using his own uh, kind of unconscious or spontaneous experience in, mm -hmm. in, in the room. And so the, the tradition that I was trained in emphasizes how important it is to be open to one's own spontaneous experience as a therapist. Mm -hmm. Of course, this isn't so far off from classical Freudian theory where right people are asked to free associate just say whatever is on your mind without censoring yourself of course that's what the patient is right <laughs> not, not the not analyst the is analyst. supposed to be uh you know a blank slate right maybe a new york freudian but maybe okay. not according to freud himself that okay. is debatable freud's actual practice was more mutual though still mm -hmm. bounded yeah um and he does at points say that that people should be more technically like moved. Mm -hmm. um, but in reality, you know, there's examples of him offering food to patients when they mm -hmm. said they were hungry. He just didn't put that so much in his technical papers. It's more it's in the footnotes and it's in his personal letters. I see. OK, but so Searles is a comes from a very different perspective, I guess. Yeah, you know, honestly, I don't, I don't recall how he was trained, but he worked with very troubled patients in a residential facility in, in Rockville, Maryland, mm -hmm. um, called Chestnut Lodge for 15 years. And he worked with a lot of people who at the time were thought to have a schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. um, but in retrospect, a lot of them look like they had complex developmental trauma and likely dissociative disorders, including what might have been called multiple personality disorders. Uh, and he, he comes at a lot of topics in a really unique way way. So some of his work is about, for example, why is it important for patients to be allowed to analyze their own therapist? Why is that information helpful? Uh, and a lot of that work has been used in, in modern therapy um, in, in what, what's called a relational psychoanalytic model, yeah. where there's mm -hmm. a recognition that there's sort of two people involved in this process. Mm -hmm. So while the therapist is not as 
open as the patient, there's still some sense that it's important. He has a, the, the, the patient as analyst to his therapist. There's an interesting uh, book he wrote about the relationship that we have to the non-human environment. You know, a lot of times therapists mm -hmm. focus on relationships with people, but it's really important, um, especially in very primitive states, how we see the inanimate or the non-living world. And then finally, he has this sort of strikingly entitled paper called The Effort to Drive the Other Person Crazy, which we, meaning my co-authors and I, in our ear relationship books, uh, have drawn on Searle's work to understand how intimacy between people can be derailed through these types of crazy making patterns. And in particular, the way people can pretend to be trying to be intimate, to perform intimacy as a way to actually avoid intimacy. And, and so that is sort of crazy sounding. And, and, and in fact, our third book, which is coming out in August, probably uh, in the summer this year is almost ready to go to press, mm -hmm. is called Making Your Crazy Work For You from trauma and isolation to self-love and acceptance, or mm, actually maybe self-acceptance nice. and love. But the idea is, is exactly kind of aligned with Searle's. Yeah. That was a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> so, but the the effort to drive the other person crazy, was that sort of the inspiration for you to look into this a little bit more? Because uh, what I'd like to connect it to is re problematic relationships that our listeners might have, right? Where they might have a lot of affection or intimacy, um, either, you know, with a friend or with a romantic partner, or a family member, but also feel really like dysregulated by someone. What do you mean by dysregulated? Meaning that, you know, they always leave the interaction feeling conflicted or feeling bad or sometimes feeling really good. And then it sort of comes crashing down. I guess I'm just thinking that some people are like stabilizing forces in our lives. And then some people just drive us crazy. And so how and why that happens, I think, would be of interest to a lot of people. Like you could you could leave an interaction with all of your self-doubts like kind of kicked up. Right. Uh, in the extreme, it's it's gaslighting and abuse, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a way where we just do this with each other because, you know, a lot of us are still trying to work out how to make the best use of ourselves. And yeah. so, yeah, we can drive each other crazy kind of consciously or unconsciously. Yeah. And a lot of times you can't tell if the other person is doing it on purpose or not, right? Right. And maybe the other person doesn't even know that they're doing it or that it's, you know, something unconscious that they're not aware that they're pushing for, but it can still be pretty destructive. Right. Well, the reason I make that distinction is because it, it makes a difference in, in how we attribute other people's motives toward us. Mm -hmm. So if you think someone is messing with you on purpose and they are, Mm -hmm. it has a very different significance for the relationship and what is the relationship right. than if someone is like, quote unquote, messing with you and they don't know it, right? Yeah. You know, the person's intention is important because if we decide that someone is intentionally trying to drive us crazy or harm us in some way, then we attribute blame. If someone is unintentionally doing it, it doesn't mean that they're not responsible in some ways, but we're going to come at them differently. Right. And certainly, if you are with someone who is intentionally trying to upset you, 
that has <laughs> much <laughs> poorer prognosis for the relationship than someone who has sort of their heart is in the right place, but they need to tune the relationship. And, and usually both people need to. Yeah, absolutely. Usually, usually birds of a feather um, relate together. <laughs> yeah, though, I think that there are sometimes like, you know, I'm thinking about office settings. Um, there are dynamics where, you know, maybe it's kind of hard to avoid certain situations. And but it might be made easier to tolerate if people understood why this is happening. Like, why would an otherwise normal person want to drive a coworker or a friend crazy? Listen, Let's not make it personal, okay? Okay. <laughs> so that would be an example of driving someone crazy. Like you're yeah. you're talking about a setting which isn't mm -hmm. our working relationship or right. our friendship. And mm -hmm. then I'm acting like you were talking about us really when you were talking about someone else. And Searle's definition of driving the other person crazy goes as follows. Mm -hmm. The initiating of any kind of interpersonal interaction which tends to foster emotional conflict in the other person, which tends to activate various parts of his or her personality in opposition to one another, tends to drive him or her or they crazy. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that it's pulling out at least two different parts of the personality in a way which the other person isn't maybe fully aware. And so it, it creates this inner emotional conflict. I see. So can we try to think of an example to illustrate well, I was, that? I was, I was thinking of the one you were giving of like a coworker mm -hmm. um, and or this actually the situation here where like you're talking about something outside of of our conversation. And then I act like you're really talking about you and me. And then so how does that put you in opposition with yourself? Right. Because I know I'm joking, but yeah. <laughs> Well, no, but I'm trying to think. I don't know that that necessarily puts me so much in opposition with myself, but it makes me question, like on one hand, just trying to have a conversation about this stuff and having it be misinterpreted. Maybe when I made that joke, if especially mm -hmm. if I were doing it for real, though, it would be putting the part of you that thinks you know what the conversation is about in conflict with the part of you that doubts that you know what we're really talking about. Mm -hmm. which can be quite decentering when someone does that. Yes. Like you absolutely. think you know what you're talking about and then all of a sudden you're talking about someone else mm -hmm. or something yeah. else. Yeah. Like imagine you think that you've made arrangements with someone to meet them at a certain time for dinner and you are absolutely crystal clear that you have these dinner plans. And then the next time you talk to them, they say like, you have a problem with your memory. We never said that. Mm -hmm. And and then you're questioning yourself, you know, am I able to remember and keep track of things or am I incompetent the way I, I deeply fear that I may actually be? And I would say that's those types of miscommunications probably come up a lot. And so what do you think we can do to kind of like defend against them? Because sometimes people think they're being clear and communicative and it just doesn't translate to the other person. Yeah, I mean... I'm just saying, um, like, what are can there... What we do about it? Yeah, what can we do about it? I think the two people have to, number one, you know, be in agreement that they want to do the work of communicating clearly. Mm -hmm. So there, there has to be a shared, explicit commitment to that goal. Okay. And there also has to be an understanding that it, it, it doesn't usually happen overnight. So 
there's going to be fits and starts, you know, there's mm -hmm. going to be mistakes along the way. We can't expect each other to be perfect, right? Right. We want to be good enough. That's also like attachment, you know, secure mm -hmm. attachment. You want to get it right about 70% of the time. And then um, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of dimensions to it. But one of them is, is making sure that when you communicate something, you repeat it to one another and confirm that you have the same understanding of what it means. Right. So like if I say, let's talk next Monday, and one person thinks that it means <laughs> April 19th, and the other person means it's April 12th, mm -hmm. and that conversation happened on April 9th, well, hey, I realized we didn't know what we meant by next Monday. Right. And you'd think that would be clear to people, but you know, I've had that conversation uh, more than once throughout the course of my life about what next Tuesday means. Right. And so it's, there has to be consensual validation is what uh, the psychiatrist uh, Sullivan called it, consensual mm -hmm. validation mm -hmm. in order to have clear communication, which he called uh, <laughs> syn syntaxic relatedness because okay. you have good syntax. That's what computers yeah. do, right? The computer yeah. goes, I'm going to send you an email. And then the mm -hmm. receiving computer goes, I'm waiting for your email. And then yeah. the sending computer says, here's the email. And the receiving computer says, I received your email with the following code for verification. Right. And then the sending computer says, <laughs> that is the correct code. You have received the correct email. And then the receiving computer okay, says, okay, okay. I this have received confirmation of receipt. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But they do that all. Takes a lot of work. <laughs> it does. And they do that in, when they run <laughs> codes in the hospital. Right. They sort of close the loop if they say, oh, I need like whatever they need from the crash cart. You Give know, me then one CC of epinephrine. Right. Here's one CC yeah. of epinephrine. Epinephrine, exactly. One cc of epinephrine in. I'm right. shocking. Stand back. Standing back. Yeah. So I think that kind of thing definitely cuts down on miscommunications, misinterpretations. Well, you're uh, you're getting at an implicit point, which I think is when is it necessary to do the work, and when yeah. is it okay to leave things a little vaguer, and right. sort of deal with the consequences of miscommunication. Right. But your premise is that you know it's important in intimate relationships, whether it's a friendship or partnership or at work, you know, and so the stakes are pretty high. But I think learning a little bit about our own, I guess, tolerance for uh, ambiguity or whatever else it might be, because some people who might not be that flexible need things to be really clear because it helps them feel secure. Right. And so I was thinking that might be a way to drive someone crazy. We're kind of vague and open ended, and someone else really needs to know a plan. And that's something that comes up, I think, a lot in dating, too. Yeah. And, and I guess I'll say the, th the, the same sort of thing is I'm, I'm, I'd be curious about how that brings that person's um, personality into conflict with itself. Well, like if someone says, oh, okay, I had a really great time. I'd like to see you again on Thursday, right? And that, and the other person is trying to be cool and sees themselves as someone who's cool and laid back and not that so tight. Who, who, who's, who's the person who's rigid here? I'm just saying there are parts of everybody who, that are rigid. But I, I mean, I've been even in, in your vignette, just I to sort be of, clear. <laughs> I sort of moved on from that. Okay. Now I'm doing a dating. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, in, you're in the dating vignette. If someone says, right. I had a good time, I'd like to see you on Thursday. Who's the one who's purportedly more flexible and who's the one who is seen as being more rigid? Okay. So 
I don't, that's what I'm saying is I don't think one person necessarily <laughs> fills that role. If someone said, oh, I'd like to see you again Thursday at six, we're going to, you know, get a cup of coffee and then walk around, you know, Madison Square Park, you know, that might sound a little bit rigid, right? But then if that other person leaves it too open, then the person who's being asked out again might feel like they're left hanging, and might say like, okay, well, I kind of want to know a time because what if that, what if the person just doesn't text them again until five o'clock on Thursday? Right. right. Or, that- or the flip side where someone says, you know, we'll, um, we'll have a meeting uh, to talk about that project at 6 p.m. on Thursday. And then the other person sort of takes it as like a soft scheduling point. Mm-hmm. And then the other person like puts it in their calendar. <laughs> And yeah. it's sort of like a stylistic difference, but right. where's the crazy making? Well, I think where's the, crazy, the conflict? The conflict is for the person who, you know, is not necessarily driving that communication, but is just sort of t- trying to follow along and trying to figure out the plan. But I mean, what specifically are the conflicted areas of the personality? You know, it's like, I think, uh, you know, I believed we had a plan. Am I missing something because apparently we didn't? So, like, sort of, am I crazy? Um, in yeah. the extreme, that becomes like gaslighting, right? Right. But in, I think, more in day to day, it's just uh, having to adapt to another person's communication style, time management skills. And so that's where I think we sometimes put things into the context of what we know about the person. For example, if I have a friend who tends to run 10 or 15 minutes late, I don't hold her to the same standard that I might hold, um, you know, like a doctor's office to or something like that. Yeah. Doctor's offices are always on time. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they so it's be more, it's more maddening with a doctor's office right. when they're late because you expect them to behave differently. But what, what about your own needs though? I mean, what if it's like, okay, I can be flexible, but you know, my life is getting busier and I no longer like it when my friends are running late and I have to choose, you know, yeah. either talk to them about it and say, hey, listen, it's great being friends with you, or I like, you know, working with you um, on this business project or this writing project, Mm -hmm. but it just doesn't work for me uh, anymore because I have these needs, right, Right. to make sure that my time is being used properly or valuable to me. And and I, I noticed that as people get older, on average, right? Their time Mm -hmm. becomes more and more valuable and they become less and less flexible and tolerant of that type of um, what might be perceived as, um, what's the word, you know, disrespectful or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatnot. But, you know, of course, the the way we interpret other people's behaviors is key. True. And I also think that being able to set boundaries um, around what works for us and doesn't, um, I'm just thinking of like a couple of things that I've started doing, you know, really since the pandemic, but where when I am scheduling something with someone, I almost never leave it open-ended. I try to figure out how much time it's going to take. If I only have till a certain amount of time, I tell people upfront the same way that I would with any other interaction. And then when I'm like making, setting clear expectations. Yeah, exactly. So that it doesn't feel... Clearly. Right. So it doesn't feel surprising to someone where like if I'm getting coffee with a friend and 
where it's supposed to be one o'clock and she's running late, I'll say, oh, that's fine, but I have to leave by two, right? Hard stop. I have a hard stop. And then when it comes to- 7 a.m. or 7 (laughs) p.m.? Right, exactly. One is one is hard to mistake, but mm-hmm. seven, seven thirty. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's why that's why I always use military time. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm sure that people love that. Twenty three hundred. Um, I also think that when it comes to you know people putting stuff in their calendars, making a lot of plans, that she will let's say offer a time to someone, yeah. and then say I'll hold both of them for you know, until tomorrow morning or something, letting someone know upfront how long you'll hold the time for, right? you know, and, and what uh-huh. else you might have going yeah. on helps to put things yeah. into context. Yeah. I mean, this also, this goes to executive function. We actually, we had a, I'll put a plug in. We okay. did a webinar last week for neighborhood psychiatry and it's on, it's on YouTube on executive functioning and home organization. And so these are all tools and tips that people can learn. I feel like we're talking about how not to drive people crazy. Um, You know, when I found myself kind of playing around on Zoom Mm -hmm. and um, acting kind of funny, and it it reminded me of one of the ways that Searles describes that people make an effort to drive one another crazy, which is relating on disjointed levels at the same time. So being like serious and playful Mm -hmm. and then then withdrawn and jumping around without any warning or um, speaking about important things or changing subjects, but talking about things without any like change in verbal tone, like to mark whether, whether you're being playful or serious. Right. So that's confusing to other people. And of of course, we're always trying to meet each other's needs in some way. That's, that's one of the ideas that Searle says in his, um, the patient as therapist to his analyst paper, Mm -hmm. he says that we naturally want to be therapists for each other. Mm -hmm. To some extent, we're trying to take care of each other. And we want to do that because we need the other person to be competent for us. So you want to make your mother or your father into the best mother and father they can be for you. And so we do want to kind of help each other out. And sometimes we do that in the process of trying to do that, Searle says, we may end up driving each other crazy. For example, um, you might be trying to help a friend of yours by pointing out that her behavior is contradictory. She says that she wants to be on time and she feels so bad for being late. Over and over again, she doesn't set an alarm or use a schedule or, you know, just forgets yeah. or starts working on her tax returns and loses <laughs> track of time. And you point that contradiction out and it causes distress or yeah. worse, you know, you, you accuse her of being hypocritical, which contains mm. also a moral judgment. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that that is a, a pretty toxic type of interaction if the person is not ready to hear it. And or and if they haven't consent consented, right? Right. Like people, right. you ask a therapist to bring things up that may be challenging, but also to take care right. of you and not be too challenging to 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 be supportive. But you yeah. don't necessarily ask your best friend to therapize you and point out, you know, all the ways you're self contradictory. No, and I think that sometimes when people do, when you were talking about, we want to be each other's therapists to make each other better. Um, I think there's something really dangerous about that because 
as you probably know, the hardest part about this role is that we, we really don't control what people do. Um, we might be able to get them to see things from a different perspective, but if the implication is that they have to do something or make a choice or behave in a way that's kind of satisfactory to another person, I think that's a, a really slippery slope. Right. I'm not. I agree with you, but I'm not quite sure what you mean yet. I guess I'm saying things like uh, behavioral changes, drinking. Is sort of you're sort of saying a relationship that could start to tip over into being ab- abusive, or at least uh, like a misuse where someone is controlling. Um, right. Or, like, mm-hmm. oh, you should really. Oh, I think you've had enough. Right. You know, do you I'm really say, need I'm another like, yeah, glass I'm, of wine? That kind of thing. Or, or worse, right? But yeah, this sort of yeah. controlling behavior, like, oh, you told me that you didn't want to eat so many French fries, and <laughs> so, so I'm gonna have the waiter take them away now. <laughs> right now, I'm going to I'm going to inappropriately arrogate power to myself <laughs> yeah. in relation to you, and even right. even when you've withdrawn sort of that request, yeah, I'm doing it for your own good. Right. This hurts me more than it hurts you, because I'm sacrificing my enjoyment of French fries out of respect for what you told me before. So that can drive a person crazy because it's like I'm I'm allied with the you from when we were getting ready more than I am with the you now, which is kind of splits the person into two. Like you told me what you wanted and now, you know, I'm sworn even over your own objections. Um, Right. And then I'm sitting there like, wait, can't you just be a friend? Right. Right. Just let it go, dude. Right. on the other hand, you know, before there were therapists in the time before, <laughs> you know, people lived in smallish communities, right? Mm-hmm. And we really did have to look out for each other. And we really did have to counsel each other and still have boundaries and, and know where to define kind of the limits of community versus individual autonomy. And of course, that also depends on the person, right? With yeah. parents and children, there's a different type of you know, fiduciary responsibility to look out mm-hmm. for your kids. And you and you do often have more power than your kids and more yeah. experience. But with two adults, it, you know, the presumptions are different. Right. But, but my point is, I think I agree with you that you have to watch out for the boundaries and the limits. Mm-hmm. But do you think there is a way where there's a healthy way where people try to help each other along in a way that is mutually consented? Yeah, certainly if people say, okay, you're going to be my workout buddy, right? And we're going to go for a four mile run together every morning. And then we decide that we're helping each other. But I think if we put, if we take the position of we're going to help someone else get in shape, or we require someone else to help us get in shape, that it could be bad for the relationship. It, it can go too far, right? So, well, mm-hmm. this goes to what you were saying about clear communication. So at what point does the person say, listen, I really appreciate that we said we would try to help motivate each other, but this doesn't feel right to me anymore. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to sacrifice our friendship because we agreed to do this thing together. Yeah, exactly. And I think it probably comes up a lot of times in couples that are living together or just trying to maintain a shared space. Like what are our ideas of how we want to live and um, who's kind of responsible for making that happen? It can be very disappointing. In what way? Well, if, if you set out to do something with someone, you know, like have a friend who's a workout buddy and you're looking forward to it. And then you find out that the person is like sort of too rigid for you 
or right. they, they're taking it more seriously than you are or in a different way yeah. and you find out that you're not aligned. How do mm -hmm. you how do you get out of that sort of formal arrangement and preserve the friendship without I, damaging it? Right. I think by saying that you really value the friendship and you're putting the friendship first and that has nothing to do with um, how you work together or work out together or live together. And this is one thing that I try to get people to understand is sometimes you have a friend who you really love, but you wouldn't want to rely on that person to you come help you. You want to go into business with them. Yeah, you might not want to go into business with them. They might not be the ones to, you know, help you change this a flat is, tire. Well, this is notorious with family businesses. For sure. You know, the New Yorker in the New Yorker cartoon version of, of that scenario where you have a friend who's a workout buddy, mm -hmm. the conversation is taking place at a cl clearly an inappropriate time, like one in the morning. <laughs> and the person is like knocking on the door, <laughs> like, let's go. And you're like, what? Right. And, and in the scary version of that, the person is almost like a stalker, right. like they won't go away. And that's why I think we have to be really clear about our boundaries and what we want for the other person from the other person, you know. Um, so on, on the therapeutic front, Searles has a comment about, and, and we can debate this, you know, when is it true and when is it not true? Uh, excuse me for a second. Okay. I was uh, rummaging through our, our tool closet for a wrench for the neighbor. It's the last time I'll see that wrench probably. You keep a wrench in your kitchen? I keep a number of tools where they're handy in order to mm. do things with tools that one wants to do with tools often. <laughs> the larger wrench I keep in the toolbox. Okay. Is that okay with you? Okay, good. I'm really not comfortable with that. <laughs> okay, well, Actually. I'll... Well, well, I'll change everything around in my life so that you can feel comfortable. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I wanted to hear. Yeah. Um, so Searles uh, says, um, one of the motives that people have for driving the other person crazy, though, as we said, this is debatable and maybe paradoxical sounding, it comes from a quote unquote conscious or unconscious desire to encourage the other person into healthier closeness, a better integration with both others and oneself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is why I wrote, you know, a blog summary of it, because the original paper is quite dense, but easy to find online. He says, it seems to me that the essence of loving relatedness entails a responding to the wholeness of the other person, including often a responding in such fashion to the other person when he himself is not aware of his wholeness finding and responding to a larger person in him than he himself is aware of being. So this is like seeing the other person's potential, mm -hmm. even when that person doesn't see it, and holding that in your mind, presumably without prematurely forcing it on the other person. What right. do you think about that? Yeah, I think that the issue is um, if that person is ready and able to access right? The part of themselves that can take it in, then great. But I guess the danger would be that if, let's say, someone is not ready to see something or hear something or is cut off from the part of themselves that that could, I guess, understand whatever it is, the comment or the, the loving gesture that Searles is talking about, it could be dangerous. And I can think of a couple of examples of this where, you know, you're wondering whether to 
uh, disclose something to a friend, something that, you know, might be overwhelming to them, but that you feel that they need to know. Such as? Saying it could be something big or something small, um, something small, such as, oh, I didn't, you know, that how they mishandled a situation. You've got something in your teeth. Right. That would be a small one. I think your husband is cheating on you. (laughs) Right. That would be a big one. Right. Right? And at each... Sometimes I think you rub people the wrong way. Right. Yeah, that would be in in the middle. I was going for that Mm -hmm. spectrum. That's just right. Goldilocks. So, um, yeah. So I think the question to ask ourselves is, is this person able to to take in... Right. And make use of what I'm about to say. And have they requested that sort of feedback? Or, or consented to it. So you, you can know. say, listen, you know, I have, I have a couple of thoughts about you. Mm-hmm. Are you interested in hearing them? Well, well what, what do you mean? Like, what kind of thoughts? Mm-hmm. Or, well, now that you've said that, I don't have a choice. Right. It's like, exactly. Well, I mean, you do, but I have disclosed some information to you by asking your permission. Right. And that might, could, I, I think that could make someone crazy and then they would need to know. And then they might respond negatively to it. Or they might say, oh, thanks so much for telling me. I'll go get a toothpick. But then they feel really embarrassed that they had something in their teeth. Yeah. Right? And it depends on the person, right? You you might have a sense of whether they're able to take it in and, and maybe right. you don't ask them or whether they can make use of it and, and maybe you make that offer. But certainly you also would want to say whatever you say tactfully right. and say not in an accusing or injured way. You're never on time. Right, you know, that's versus, like super critical. Yeah. yeah, like I hate that you're not on time. Like you've inconvenienced me so much versus, right. you know, sometimes I think it would be, you're, you're better at this. So how would yeah, you put it? I like to talk in the affirmative. That's like a parenting trick. Uh-huh. I learned um, that people oh, respond being spoken to that way. <laughs> no, but like with kids, instead of saying, if you say stop shouting, right, they hear the shouting. And if you say, let's keep quiet, then that's what sticks with them. So when it comes to when it comes to my adult interactions, I really like to give positive reinforcement for the things that feel good. So if someone makes sense to me shows up on time, I'll say, Oh, I'm so happy to see you. I'm glad we get our full time together. Right. 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 You're, you're sort of trying surreptitiously to positively reward the behavior that you wish to see more of in the future. Yeah. Rather than criticize, because that's not really what my job is or what I'm doing. Well, how would you do that with someone who's been late for your meeting for 15 times in a row. Mm-hmm. It's clearly a pattern. It is a pattern. And I might ask. Let, let me I give do. you two scenarios. Okay. In, in one scenario, you're, you're quite sure that it only happens with you. Mm-hmm. And then in the other scenario, you're quite sure that this is something that happens in most of their relationships. Right. Right. Well, what I like to ask, because I feel like it's not accusatory, but maybe you'll think it is, is what prevents you from being on time most of the time? Because if it's something like that person really can't manage, they can't get across town in a timely fashion, then I'll say, you know what, maybe it's better if I come to you, right? I'll come to your neighborhood and then you're less likely to be late. You wouldn't say what time would you need to leave to be on time? <laughs> I could. I could. That's really taking it a step farther. Um, I think it depends on how you locate your own needs in relation to other yeah, people, yeah. how one does. 
Yeah, but I think like well, curiosity. Why would that be accusatory though? Asking what prevents you from being untied? No, I just hope that it wouldn't be perceived that way. No, you said I might hear it as accusatory. Why? Why do you think a person might hear that as accusatory? Because you're pointing out that they're never on time, and sometimes there's not an easy way to point out someone's flaw. No matter what, like right. You could yeah. always try something uh, more delicate first. Like, have you noticed anything about when we hang out? <laughs> Oh, I'm always there first waiting for 20 minutes. Yeah, you're always yeah. early. But I... <laughs> Why are you always early? I think it's also... Um, we say When we say 10 a.m., it means 10, 15, 10, 20, right? New York rules. Right. Oh, I'm so glad we had this conversation because yeah. I use Boston rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 10 a.m. means 10 a.m. Yeah. Oh, but in New York, like everyone's late. Yeah, I'm well... I'm so sorry. Like, okay, yeah. we had a misunderstanding. I guess it's a misunderstanding and not a huge deal. I'll I think see you it at also <laughs> I think it also depends on how you respond when other people, you know, when you're sort of on the other end of that. So the reason that I'm so relaxed generally speaking about other people being late or being disorganized is cuz a lot of the time I'm the one who's running late, totally harried and like, you know, can't keep my schedule straight. So then if I were to hold someone else to a different standard, it would feel like kind of hypocritical. Nothing wrong with being hypocritical, though. I mean, everyone's I should say nothing wrong with being somewhat self-contradictory. You know, I don't think anyone is 100 percent internally consistent. And if you expect someone to be 100 percent internally consistent, I I think it's it's going to be very stressful. Right. Uh, right. Unless you purely surround yourself with similar people. Yes, which I think um, that can can be fine if when we're choosing friends, but with family and with um, colleagues, it can you know people have different styles. Right. Well, it depends. Right. You you have a certain level of choice in who you relate to in different spheres. Sometimes in the workplace, you don't have a choice, but if you're assembling like a team of people mm-hmm. and, and you have some control over who's on that team, then yeah. you can be more selective. Though usually you're looking for balance depending on you know what that team is going to be working on. And people with certain skills and talents tend to be looser and people with other skills and talents tend to be more fastidious. And mm-hmm. if you need a mixed team, then you've got to have some way of dealing with that um, yeah. difference, you know, Yeah, and so I that think people have, aren't driven crazy. Exactly. But I think having some ground rules and having, you know, that's why offices have like a handbook or there's, you know, office culture or whatever else that dictates uh, how things are run. Yeah. Well, that's helpful. You know, and then you have these rules written down, but then how do you sort of use the rules? Because you know, a handbook can be used in constructive and in unconstructive mm-hmm. ways, right? And not everyone reads those things. It's like, you know, when you check the box on your mobile phone contract and it's 22 mm-hmm. pages. Yeah. And but then I... two years later, they're like, oh, no, you promised us to sign over the mortgage in your in your <laughs> house to us if you end your contract early. Mm-hmm. Um, you signed the contract. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think people can always or should always have... The right to revise and revoke. Certainly, um, read read whatever you sign. Yeah, but even if you sign something at a point in life that you know where it might not have felt like a big deal, circumstances change. You know, yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. 
I was listening to Leonard Cohen mm-hmm. uh, performing the song Suzanne. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he was giving a little background before he started singing. He said, I wrote the song Suzanne and I don't have the rights to it because a quote unquote friend of mine said, just sign this contract. It's a routine contract. Mm-hmm. And unbeknownst to me, I was signing it over to the record company or whatever. Yeah, and he says, you know, he had come to terms with it. He said, but you know, a song like that, it's better that like, I don't own it. Mm-hmm. He appeared to have accepted it, but there, he wasn't getting the rights to his song back ever. Yeah. Of course, now he's no longer with us. But Suzanne is. You know, it's interesting, this driving each other crazy. And it's used colloquially all the time, right? People say that in casual conversation. You're driving me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think people should be prepared to talk about what it is. Like if it's, oh, well, you're just so hot and cold, right? What is driving um, them crazy? Right. What drives me crazy is that, you know, one minute we're laughing and joking and the next minute it's like all business, right? And that feels rejecting and cold. Well, I remember you're reminding me, I wrote I wrote a piece before this one on Cyril's called How to Crazy Proof Yourself. Mm-hmm. So I agree with you. It's important to know what the other person is doing, but it's also important to know what drives me crazy. Mm-hmm for me to know what drives me crazy so that I can manage myself better. Right. Well, you, think, do you know what drives you crazy? Yeah, there are very few things, but I, I do know what they are, but I prefer not to say. I know you don't want to <laughs> let anyone know because then they might do it on purpose. <laughs> and so, sort of that's also the fun. If it if there's a friendly situation, mm-hmm. right, then you right. can be playful and it's not so dangerous feeling. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But I think what I've learned this year is that talking things through whatever the situation is, is almost always a a good use of time and, and sometimes has a positive outcome, sometimes not, but just trying to understand where the other person is coming from. I used to be so worried about getting into like a conflict with someone or the confrontation felt so uncomfortable, but now it feels more uncomfortable for me to not talk about it. Avoiding conflict or feeling uncomfortable with healthy aggression um, mm-hmm. or assertiveness can can be a big problem. You know, avoidance mm-hmm. in general. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at this now that I'm remembering it. This yeah. um, eight fundamental tools to crazy proof yourself. And you were asking before, so I wonder well, if you have any additions to this list. But th- these are the ones I came up with, okay. sort of off the top of my head. I, I didn't find a research paper on it. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is know thyself. Mm-hmm. Know your levers. You know, step outside of yourself without losing control, and use self-doubt as an ally. Okay. Um, rather than being scared of self-doubt, it's 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 a sign that there's something to be curious about and think about. Write your own operator's manual, putting self-knowledge into practice. Slow down and think. Uh, this is encouraging reflective function over intuitive thinking, yeah. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness helps, right? Know the context so you don't mm-hmm. make false assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, what? how come you were late today, you know? Is it because you're a horrible person or do you have a legitimate excuse this time? Um, Defeating the inner gaslighter. I like that one a lot Mm because we can fool ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, Developing emotional capability, like you were talking about emotional regulation, but just knowing one's emotions and being able to have that self-dialogue like, oh, I'm feeling, I'm really feeling hurt. Like I'm angry, but actually what's behind the anger is injury, learn to read others and engage in what I call deep self-care. 
self-compassion and not just, you know, exercising and eating well and sleeping properly, which is good, but having compassion, I think for oneself, I think those are, are great. I think, um, we're sort of wrapping up now, but why don't we, but what we could interrogate that a little bit more, maybe in another, yeah, maybe in another episode. We can inquire, inquire and look into it. Yeah. Good. So if people want to read more about about this, there, there are two posts, the effort to drive the other person crazy, mm-hmm. and why do people induce inner conflict in others? They're, they're both on my Psychology Today blog, Experimentations, mm-hmm. and I just review all of the different elements that Searles made explicit in his papers that cool. we've alluded to and in some cases discussed here. Great. Well, maybe we can link to it, get a chance to read a little bit more about it. But thanks so much for listening. Yeah. And if you have any feedback, uh, we're, you know, our website is probably in our postscript anyway, but yeah. it's doorknobcomments.com. And our email is hello, hello, hello at doorknobcomments.com. Hello. Hello. <laughs> at doorknobcomments.com. Okay. We would love to hear, you know, ideas for guests, uh, yeah. podcast episodes, or, you know, any feedback. Yeah. And of course, we would we would love your positive feedback online. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks for listening to Doorknob Comments. We're committed to bringing you new episodes with great guests. Please take a moment to share your thoughts. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find us on Instagram at Doorknob Comments. Remember, this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of psychiatry or any other type of medicine. This is not a substitute for professional and individual treatment services and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you feel that you may be in crisis, please don't delay in securing mental health treatment. Thank you for listening.